Sometimes crimes are committed that despite extensive efforts are never solved. The same can be said for events that happen that defy explanation. In this video, we'll be looking at a mixture of the two, from a frozen to death experience to a long forgotten unsolved crime. Chicago Tylenol Poisonings On the morning of September 20th, 1982, 12-year-old Mary Kellerman from Elk Grove Village in Chicago complained to her parents that her throat was sore and she had a runny nose. Her parents gave her one extra strength Tylenol capsule to ease her symptoms. Tylenol is a perfectly safe over-the-counter painkiller, similar to ibuprofen. But instead of relieving Mary's symptoms, the capsule killed her as it had been laced with potassium cyanide. The same day, 27-year-old postal worker Adam Janus of Arlington Heights, Illinois, died of what was initially thought to be a massive heart attack. His brother and sister-in-law, Stanley and Teresa, rushed to his home to console their loved ones after his unexpected death. When they arrived stressed and upset, they both had throbbing headaches and each took a Tylenol extra-strength capsule they found in Adam's medicine cabinet. Later that day, Stanley died and two days later, Teresa also lost her life. Over the next few days, three more unexpected deaths occurred. 35-year-old Mary McFarland of Elmhurst, Illinois, 35-year-old Paula Prince of Chicago, and 27-year-old Mary Weiner of Winfield, Illinois. All three were previously fit and healthy. It wasn't until early October that it was revealed all the deaths had one thing in common, they had all taken Tylenol shortly before they died, and all the capsules had been laced with a lethal dose of cyanide. Panic set in amongst the residents of Chicago, and frantic warnings were issued via the media and patrols using loudspeakers, warning residents throughout Chicago to discontinue the use of Tylenol products and ordering a massive recall of the more than 31 bottles of Tylenol in circulation. Police quickly ruled out contamination during production and concluded that the medicine had been tampered with over several weeks, with the culprit adding the cyanide to the capsules, before methodically returning to the stores to place the bottles back on the shelves. During the investigation into catching the predator, many suspects were investigated, including James William Lewis, who sent a letter to Johnson & Johnson demanding $1 million to stop the cyanide-induced murders. He was later ruled out as a suspect, but was still charged with extortion and sentenced to 20 years in prison. Eventually, all the suspects were ruled out, and to this day, the murderer or murderers have never been caught. Over the years, scarily, other copycat poisonings involving Tylenol and other over-the-counter medications have occurred, though thankfully, none as deadly as the 1982 Chicago area incident. Sadly, the deaths that resulted from the Tylenol poisonings can never be undone, but the incident did inspire a series of significant changes to make over-the-counter medications safer, and Johnson & Johnson introduced tamper-proof packaging that is still in use today to ensure something like this can never happen again, as for the perpetrator, while well, he or she is still at large. The Pollock Twins Florence Pollock and her husband John were proud parents of two beautiful daughters, 11-year-old Joanne and 6-year-old Jacqueline. The family lived in the pretty English town of Hexham. 
May 5th, 1957 was just another Sunday for the Pollocks. They got up late, ate breakfast, and made their way to church. But as the two girls crossed the street, an out-of-control car careered toward them, striking both the sisters and killing them almost instantly. The driver was an intoxicated mother who was attempting to kill herself after losing custody of her own children. John and Florence were, as you would expect, devastated by the loss of their daughters and felt completely lost. The couple needed children in their lives, so decided to try for another child. On October 4th, 1958, just little over a year after losing their daughters, Florence gave birth to identical twin girls who they named Gillian and Jennifer. Soon after their birth, the family decided they wanted a fresh start away from the place where the horrible accident had taken place. So they moved from Hexham to a place called Bexley Bay on England's northeast coast. The family settled in with their new babies who were both happy and healthy. However, as they grew, their parents started to notice some bizarre likeliness to Joanne and Jacqueline. Jennifer had two birthmarks, one on her waist and the other on her forehead. Their late daughter Jacqueline had a birthmark and a scar in the exact same place. At first, Florence and John thought nothing of it, believing it was just a coincidence. However, as the girls got older and began to speak, the similarities between their twins and their late daughters became too pronounced to ignore. The girls simply knew things they shouldn't have. Almost as soon as they were able to talk, they began asking for their old toys. Confused, the parents asked them to elaborate, and as clear as day, the twins asked for dolls that had belonged to the previous twins, dolls they'd never seen or heard of. From there, the similarities only intensified, and things got more bizarre when the family moved back to Hexham after Florence and John grew homesick. The twins had no memory of Hexham, as they were so young when they moved. But they seemed to know things, they recognised landmarks in Hexham they'd never seen, and they started asking to go places that were their sister's favourites, and knew Joanna and Jacqueline's school, as well as various friends they'd had. The girls also had the same tastes as their late sisters, and even liked the same foods, clothing and songs. However, some of their knowledge was more disturbing. Their parents had never revealed the true nature of Joanna's and Jacqueline's catastrophic injuries, but despite this, they still seemed to be aware of the gory details of their sister's deaths. One day, Gillian turned to Jennifer and told her that she could see blood coming from her eyes. Both girls also had a seemingly unexplainable phobia of cars. Florence and John became increasingly convinced their twins were the reincarnation of Joanne and Jacqueline, and that their dead daughters had returned to life as Gillian and Jennifer. However, after the girls turned five years of age, with no warning or explanation, the girls stopped mimicking their dead sisters, and as if a switch had been flicked, they lost all memory of their past lives, and they went on to lead normal lives as children and into adulthood. Do you think the twins returned as their dead sisters, or was it all just a bizarre coincidence? What do you think? Frozen Jean Hillard On a freezing night on December 20th, 1980, 19-year-old Jean Hillard was driving her dad's Ford car along an icy gravel shortcut near Legby, Minnesota, when the car slipped and ended up in a ditch. Jean knew she wasn't far from a ranch, so she scrambled out of the car and decided to walk to get help. The temperature that night was 20 below freezing, and Jean wasn't really dressed for the conditions, and it wasn't long before she started to struggle. 
The ranch was a lot further away than she first thought. After two miles of walking, Jean could finally see the ranch in the distance. That is, the last thing she remembers before blacking out. The next morning, the ranch owner, Wally Nielsen, found Jean in his yard. The poor girl was literally frozen solid like a block of ice. Her eyes were frozen open, and Wally was sure she was dead. Wally knew Jean well, as she was dating his friend, and the night before, they'd all been out together, drinking and dancing. But as he pulled her towards his house, he noticed a few bubbles coming out of her nose. Wally, who had a lady friend over, asked her to help him load Jean's body into his truck, but it was so solid it wouldn't fit in the cab, so they had to take the woman's car instead. It appeared there was no hope for Jean. When she arrived at Foston Hospital, doctors also feared the worst. Jean was so frozen, they couldn't even get an IV into her arm. The needles kept breaking. They figured she was almost certainly dead, but decided to warm her up anyway with heating pads, and a pastor was called to say prayers. To everyone's surprise, as Jean's body thawed, she started to spasm, and by noon, she was talking coherently. In just a few hours, she'd gone from a block of ice to a scared teenager, worrying about her dad finding out his car was in a ditch. She had no idea she had been frozen solid for six hours and brought back to life. Due to severe frostbite, doctors considered amputating both Jean's legs to avoid infection. But in the end, Jean went home with little more than blistered toes that were numb for a while. Her case was so remarkable it made headlines, and it was laundered as a modern-day miracle. Jean was in demand to tell her story, and toured local churches, and appeared on talk shows, and was dubbed the Miracle Girl from Langby, Minnesota. Since her ordeal, Jean has suffered no ill effects from being frozen solid and brought back to life, and went on to get married and have children. Nowadays she lives in Cambridge, Minnesota, and works in a Walmart. Whilst it's not unheard of for a human to be thawed out alive after being frozen solid, it is extremely rare, which is why the hospital did everything they could to try and revive her. They have a motto that no one is dead until they're warm and dead, something that almost certainly saved her life. However, what is a mystery, in Jean's case, is the way they thawed her out. These days, with modern medicine, doctors use a special device that pumps the patient's blood through a heater, warming their vital organs from the inside, giving the patient a much better chance of survival. Whereas back in 1980, all Jean had was some heat pads, a lot of prayers, and an incredible amount of luck. The Mysterious Death of Mary Reeser On a July morning in 1951, Landlord Pansy Carpenter received a telegram, addressed to Mary Risa, one of the tenants in a Tampa Bay apartment complex. She took the telegram to Mary's apartment and knocked on the door. When there was no answer, she decided to open the door using her keys, but got a shock when the doorknob felt unusually hot, almost to the point of being untouchable. As she entered the apartment, she realized something was very wrong and didn't go any further before calling the police. When the police arrived, they found 67-year-old Mary, along with the chair she was sitting on, burned to ashes. All that was left was her left foot, her skull, and part of her spine. Next to her chair was a pile of newspapers completely unaffected by the fire. Also intact was all the furniture, carpets, and walls in the apartment. The only sign that there had been a fire at all were a few softened plastic appliances and some soot on the ceiling above Mary's cremated body. 
The investigation into Mary's death perplexed the police, for Mary to have burned to ash like she had would have required a temperature of around 3,000 degrees, and yet her living room contained almost no evidence of a small fire, let alone an inferno. Her skull had shrunk to a very small size, an anomaly which complicated the investigation further, as normally under intense heat the human skull would blow up, often to the point of explosion. The only thing they could confirm with certainty was that Mary met her death in the early hours of the morning at around 4.30am, as this was the time her clock had stopped after its socket had melted. With nothing else to go on, the police sent Mary's remaining foot, six small objects thought to be teeth, part of the carpet and some glass shards found in the ashes to the FBI director Edgar Hoover, with a note requesting information or theories on what could have caused a human body to incinerate in such a small area with so little damage to anything around it. After several weeks, the FBI declared it was a case of the wick effect, caused by the unfortunate combination of Mary's flammable nightgown, her cigarette, and the fact she had taken sleeping pills. It was theorized that Mary had either died from a stroke or heart attack, or was unconscious under the influence of sleeping pills, when her lit cigarette fell on her nightclothes and burned through her skin like a candle. However, the problem with this theory was it didn't quite explain how enough heat was generated to cremate a human body or why the skull had shrunk. This theory was quickly dismissed by another expert and the St. Petersburg police were back at square one. It was later suggested that Mary might have been murdered and burned at a different location and then brought back to the apartment. However, again, this theory was flawed as the killer would have had to have had access to crematorium equipment and why bring her back with a burnt chair? Then of course there is the speculation that Mary's death was a case of spontaneous human combustion, when an object ignites and burns without an external source of fire. However, the FBI and the police categorically ruled out this theory in the Mary Risa case, although even today the case is incorrectly described as spontaneous human combustion. The truth is, there is still no single satisfying theory that explains all the elements of Mary's death, and 70 years later, it remains one of the biggest unsolved mysteries in modern history. The Real Walter Collins On March 10th, 1928, a nine-year-old boy named Walter Collins disappeared from his Los Angeles neighborhood after a trip to the cinema. The police searched frantically for the boy, and his disappearance received nationwide attention. But despite many leads, they turned up nothing, and the Los Angeles Police Department came under increasing pressure to solve the case. Then five months after Walter vanished, a boy claiming to be Walter handed himself in to police in DeKalb, Illinois. Walter's mother Christine saw photographs of the boy, and they exchanged letters, and believing he was her son, she paid for him to be brought to Los Angeles. But when Christine was reunited with her son, she told the police the boy was not Walter. However, the officer in charge of the case, Captain J.J. Jones, was under pressure to get the case wrapped up, so he convinced Christine to take the boy home and try him out. After three weeks, Christine was still convinced the boy was not Walter, and she obtained Walter's dental records to prove the boy was an imposter. However, Captain Jones wouldn't accept the boy wasn't Walter, and he accused Christine of being a bad mother who was trying to abandon her son. He also told her she was bringing ridicule to the police department 
Jones then had Christine committed to a psychiatric ward at Los Angeles County Hospital under a Code 12 internment, a term used to jail or commit someone who was deemed difficult or an inconvenience. Whilst Christine was held against her will, the boy was questioned again, and a handwriting expert determined that the boy's handwriting samples did not match Walter's. He later admitted he was 12-year-old Arthur Hutchins Jr., who ran away from home after his mother died. When police initially picked him up in Iowa and asked him if he was Walter Collins, he said no, but then said yes, believing by posing as the missing boy, he could get a free trip to California so he could meet his favorite actor, Tom Mix. After the revelation, Christine was released and filed and won a lawsuit against the Los Angeles Police Department and Jones. Christine won the case and was awarded $10,800, which Jones never paid. He was initially suspended by the LAPD, but later permanently reinstated. It is widely believed that Walter Collins was one of the victims of serial killer Gordon Stewart Northcott and his mother, Sarah Louise Northcott. The Northcotts kidnapped, sexually abused, and killed several boys in what became known as the Wineville Chicken Coop murders. Although they were never charged with the murder because police couldn't find any physical evidence that conclusively linked Walter to them. Although after speaking to Gordon shortly before he was executed, Christine was convinced her son was not one of their victims as she thought he was insane and his vague replies and his refusal to remember any details about Walter's clothing or appearance gave her hope that her son was still alive. Christine held out hope for decades that Walter was still alive and she continued searching for him until she died in Los Angeles in 1964, 36 years after her only son went missing. To date, no one exactly knows what happened to Walter Collins. In 2008, the film Changeling was released, starring Angelina Jolie as Christine Collins, that repeated the events of Walter Collins' disappearance and his links to the Wineville Chicken Coop murders. So that's it for this video. We hope you've enjoyed, and leave any theories on these five cases in the comments section below. Thanks for watching, and as always, we'll see you in the next one.